Bonjour, and welcome to House Cats, the program where we are going district by district talking about Congress people and the people that they're supposed to represent. That's, That's right. All of us. We're crowdsourcing Congress, baby. And of course, uh, throwing in a little bit of French there to honor the uh, French uh, fur traders that uh, helped develop uh, in many more ways than one the great state of Minnesota, the land of 10,000 lakes, where we'll be resting our paws this week. Nick, thank you so much for appreciating the subtle references that I toss out often for our more academically inclined crowd. I will say, for those who are kind of looking for Easter eggs, those cut from the Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code, National Treasure cloth, I do recommend parsing everything I've ever said on this (laughs) podcast because I can promise that there is at least two layers of meaning to everything that's been uttered. Wow. Whereas... uh you know, I just show up here and Brendan gives me a piece of paper and I just do it all cold. So I don't know which is more impressive, frankly. It is tough to say. There <laughs> yeah. is something about your acting skills that as he's he's literally reading even this conversation straight from a paper. Correct. Oh, it's all scripted. scripted. Yes. And there's something about your intonation that does make it feel fresh. But again, for our tin foil hatters out there, you know, <laughs> for, our, for our people who are looking for that, the secret to life, really. Um, go back and listen to everything I've ever said. Yeah, a lot of wisdom here. And speaking of wisdom, let's get a little wisdom ourselves about this district, the Minnesota 3rd. Nick, why don't you kick us off? Sure. Well, of course, you know, it, I, I'd i be remiss if I uh, did not reveal my own potential bias here this week. Uh, I know, I, I again, I just wee wish... Wee-oo, wee-oo, wee That's right, folks. We've got a bias alert. <laughs> If I had showed up here any moment before the microphones were turned on, I could have asked you if this was okay. Uh, but we're just going to roll with it. Yep. Uh, I am a native of the Minnesota 5th District, uh, just one to the east, uh, home to uh, Minneapolis proper. But numerically two away. Uh, that's correct. I, don't ask me why that happens. St. Paul is the 4th, and that's on the other side. But we don't care about that one today. Nope. Let's we talk don't care about, about either of those. We're talking about the 3rd. The Minnesota Third is uh, home to lo- many of the western and northwestern, southwestern suburbs of the city of Minneapolis. Uh, Minneapolis, uh, not the largest city in America uh, by any stretch, but the metropolitan area, very, very large and sprawling. So the third district actually is pretty compact geographically, uh, but it has a lot of different burbs in it. Many of them are uh, middle class, upper upper middle class. The average, uh, the median income in the third district is much, much higher than the average national median income, sitting uh, above $80,000. And uh, it is a largely white district. Some of uh, the cities that are at home in the Minnesota third that you may have heard of, Brendan, have you ever heard of Bloomington? Yes. Have you? See? Oh, okay. Yeah, it's where the airport is. It's where the Mall of America is. Uh, Edina is also uh, inside the 3rd District. Edina, home to the Southdale Mall, which is the nation's first indoor mall. And made famous by that song, Someone's in the kitchen with Edina. (laughs) Is today the first time you've heard the city Edina? Correct. Wow, that's just so, so fast. And I am... Exactly. I I rarely have been so captivated by a city that I have just learned of and yet to visit. Yeah. Uh, Well, it's a delightful place. I really hope you really hope you give it a visit one day. Um, So listen, one other important thing to hit about the Minnesota third. uh, Often we talk about 
the Cook PVI rating of a place, uh, which is the numerical estimation of the current place it sits on the partisan scale, R to D. And we will get into who represents the Minnesota third. Maybe. If we feel like it. If there's time. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But currently, the Minnesota third has a Cook PVI rating of D plus one. So it is... It's quite uh, there in the middle, but it is notable that it is D plus one because the representative of the Minnesota third is not a D. He's an R. In fact, that R goes by the name Eric Paulson. That's right. Eric Paulson has been the R representing that D district <laughs> since 2008 when he was first elected. Uh, there was an open seat. No one was running for re-election, and he swooped in from the Minnesota House um of representatives where he had been in the state house for uh, a couple years before that. Yeah, he is a career politician. Yeah, in- indeed. He was the uh, majority leader in the state house uh, before he was elected to the U.S. Congress. So definitely a-, a lifer in Minnesota politics, a known quantity. And this district before him was consistently Republican as well, long held by by very uh, centrist Republicans. Uh, and one of those centrist Republicans uh, for a long time was believed to be Eric Paulson. So after he was elected in 2008, he quickly gained power in Congress, focusing on issues primarily related to taxation uh, and economic growth. He's long been touted himself as a, a fan of small businesses, believes very much in the economic power that that they can provide, and so has kind of dedicated his life both in the Minnesota State House and now in the uh, big crate, the House of Congress. <laughs> he has dedicated his life to lowering taxes on corporations, believing that that's going to stimulate the American economy. Right. And in that way, the man has been very successful. Indeed. And to uh, get a little further examination of that, we should visit the professionals down at the vet. Yes, this patient is in incredibly serious condition. I can say that he looks to be a member of the Ways and Means Committee of Very the House. Very good. Wow. Yeah, I'm so happy we brought this seasoned uh, medical professional here. You got it. Thank you. I believe my diagnosis would be that he has spends 57 some odd percentage, according to GovTrack.org, of his legislative time focused on tax-related issues. I've, again, I'm amazed by your, your specificity and your wisdom, your expertise. So happy you're here. And if I had to further make a diagnosis, I would guess that Eric Paulson spent a significant time and had a significant hand in the most recent tax legislation overhaul. That's exactly right. So he, uh, he was very proud of his work on this recent uh, tax bill. And you will hear, over the course of our interviews in this episode, uh, many people responding to that and have different relationships to that vote and that piece of legislation. But that was a a signature achievement of Eric Paulson's of late. And Nick, before we go any further... Just, oh, you're, oh, you're back. Yeah, just just checking in on that, uh, that bias alert situation. All of this has been the truth, right? Yeah, probably. No, uh, no fake muse? <laughs> All right. As Representative Paulson was so proud of his work on this tax legislation, uh, and you're going to hear one of our our listeners this week actually 
spoke about the fact that it was the first tax overhaul that's ever been passed without positive support at the time of its passage. Um, did he share that that pride with his constituents, Nick? So this is going to be a central piece of discussion this week. Uh, you know, often we dabble. We are interested in the question of representation, how connected are the representatives to their constituents. I'd say we liked it so much we started an entire podcast to investigate it. <laughs> That's right. And apparently the situation's bad enough that we have a lot to talk about because every episode, people's got, people, people got some thoughts on that. Anyway, your question was, uh, did Eric Paulson go to his constituents and say, look at this thing I did. Isn't it great? Let's, let's engage about it. You know, uh, he did not. Eric Paulson, um, you know, by his own constituents account and by just the, the numbers, has not spent a lot of time talking with his constituents about much of anything. Well, Nick, let's talk about how we got here. What led us to the Minnesota Third this week? What's that catnip? Excellent. So the catnip that really tempted us to the Minnesota third, to the beautiful Minnesota third. There's the bias alert. I'm so sorry. Uh, yeah, that's it. But it is it is gorgeous. If you ever have a chance to go, it's really splendid. Um, what brought us here is an article that I saw in the Star Tribune, a, a local rag, about how Eric Paulson has been utilizing a technology of telephone town halls of late. He's really in on this. He thinks it's a great way to connect to his constituents. And the way it sort of works, just quickly, is a broad swath of the district, uh, certain cities will get a call, giving them a dial-in number and saying this starts in an hour. Dial-in, Eric Paulson's going to talk about stuff he's been doing, and then he'll answer a few questions. That's the idea. Sounds good? Well, it sounds okay. Uh, but the, there's there's two issues that people tend to have with this. One, that it is uh, a pretty pre-screened it's pretty anodyne so eric paulson mostly talks at you for a while about the things he's been working on that's fine information he does allow a few questions but they've all been pre-screened and so there is there's no chance of any feathers being ruffled uh any tails sticking straight up in the air uh nothing of that kind the other issue that people tend to have with this is that he has not had a, an in-person town hall in the 3rd District for six years. And Nick, before I kind of dive in with this, just to confirm, how long is the, the term for a member of the House of Representatives again? Uh, let me Google that. Uh, it's two years. Hmm, two years. So you're telling me for three straight terms in Congress, yep. he has not held an in-person town hall. That's correct. He does seem to come to the district for fundraisers, for private meetings, uh, does not have a, any public town halls. Okay. Um, I have a certain opinion of that, but I'd also like to open it up. So we, for the first time, we did bring in uh, a little bit of a live audience for this episode. And I would like, okay, everyone get ready. Please cheer as loudly as you'd like when I throw out this question, okay? Who here prefers that their representative not hold in-person town hall meetings? The people have spoken. Wow. Six years! <laughs> 
Come on. Yeah, really amazing. It's ridiculous. I mean, you're going to hear it from his constituents, so we don't need to get so fired up about this issue. It cuts across all ideological lines. We talk to people from all over the, the spectrum who have different opinions about how to fix their problems, but they universally agree that the first step in fixing their problems is having the person who has the power to do it hearing what those problems are. Correct. It's absolutely antithetical to the idea of a representative democracy. How does one represent someone if they don't know what they care and what they're, what uh, matters to them? How do you solve a problem that you don't know exists? Right. It's really wild. I mean, you know, again, we've hit this question a lot of times on this, on this podcast. This is our sixth episode. Six years is uh, that is that's a it's a horse of a different color. And look, because of that, because uh, Eric Paulson has neglected his constituents for so long, you know, we on this podcast, we wanted to give them a platform. So we let them run a little bit longer than we normally right. would. And we are here to say, to pledge to you, if you want our episodes to be shorter, encourage your representatives to meet with their constituents. Because for every six months that the representative we're talking about has not met with their constituents, we give the people 15% longer. <laughs> That's more content time to voice their opinions. So if you out there are listening to this but think it's a little long at this point yep. and would like to hear less, get these representatives <laughs> on the horn so they can start talking about their representatives and you can go about your day not having to listen to this podcast. And so could we, frankly. I have other things to do. Absolutely. I mean... They're not that great. I mean, yeah, we probably right. still do this, but <laughs> just do it for ourselves. All the people in this live studio audience would much rather be at home. That's right. Um, but listen, you know, this is it's really outrageous the situation that Eric Paulson has put his constituents in. Um, but it is so it's so wild that I thought we could really revel in this, really uh, come to understand it, really examine it in an emotional way. So I have set up a new segment uh, this week that. I have not prepped Brendan for it all. I do not know anything. Uh, and um, it's the uh, it's it's a it's a new game that I am calling 2012, the year the world didn't end, but Eric Paulson's visits to the third district did. I can imagine on a T-shirt now. Would this perchance be the theme to the rock vehicle 2012? <laughs> you know, you're right about that. Uh, I think actually, no, that's not the rock, is it? He was he was in uh, San Andreas. He was in San Andreas, very similar. Yes, that is uh, the classic opening theme to the film 2012 about the natural disaster that didn't end up happening. It may as well have for Eric Paulson's visits to the third district, though, as that was the last year in which they occurred. Now, I just want to really come to understand what this really means sure. let's let's put this in multiple contexts how long it has been okay so i'm gonna ask you five questions brendan okay. and if you get at least three right i will buy you a deep fried twinkie when we go to the minnesota state fair at some point it's the best place on earth if you haven't been folks it's really worth the trip uh that's only if you get three right i'm in my okay. arteries are out that's right <laughs> yeah so it'll be unfortunate. It'll take a year off your life, but it's worth it. Okay. First question. If you were to walk into an Apple store on the day Eric Paulson held his last town hall, 
What would be the newest model of iPhone that you could buy? Is it the iPhone 5, the iPhone 5C, or the iPhone 6? Really, really interesting question. Yep. Um, so it's tough to, to go back just thinking on the Apple cycles. I do think they traditionally for a while did the new number and then the special edition, like maybe the C the next year and then released a new one. Right. We're also now on 10, but that's technically we jumped, eight. We had eight and then we jumped to no, uh, 10 right, right. or X. Okay. I, hmm. The 5C, remember, were the ones that had fun colors. Right. It's five years ago now. Six. Six years ago. Hmm. I'm going to go with the 5C. Incorrect. It was the iPhone 5. Ugh, all right. So you, ju- you you gave him a little bit too much credit. Yes. It was an older model. Wow, yeah. I mean, I thought it was been so recent. It was just the 5C had just come out, you know? <laughs> no, but right. really, wow, the iPhone 5? The iPhone 5. It's been a minute. Yeah, they were a completely different object, really. All right, question number two. Get it together. Uh, say you're settling down on the couch after a long day, and you're ready to turn on the tube. Which show of the following, only one, would you have been able to watch live <laughs> the last time Eric Paulson held a town hall? Sure. Smallville, CSI Miami, wow. or <laughs> The Americans? Whoo, okay. Great programs, all, all of right. them. So The Americans just finished their run, and I think there was a five-season run. Okay. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cross them off. I don't think they were airing yet. Yep. So now the question is, was CSI Miami... Yeah. Um, Horatio Kane still still going. Yeah. <laughs> David Caruso. Or what was what was the other program? Uh, Smallville. Or Smallville. God. Which I believe maybe started in ni- the nineties, I don't know. <laughs> and ran for an indeterminate amount of time on the CW. Um I'm gonna say CSI Miami. That's correct. Yes. Ding ding ding. All right, one down. Very good. Uh, okay, question three. Yep. Waiting for your congressman to come to town is hungry work. Good thing that the Minnesota 3rd is full of chain restaurants, something that you and I feel very passionate about. Yep. There are many Taco Bells, of course, uh, at home in the Minnesota 3rd. T-Bells. Uh, T-Bell is very famous. They got, they got a lot of turnover in their menu. They're always yep. trying new things. Yep. Some of them stick around. Some of them don't. If you were at a town hall, uh, Taco Bell right before going to Eric Paulson's last town hall in 2012, yep. which of these menu items would you have been able to enjoy? Oh, boy. <laughs> a Doritos Locos Taco. No way. A naked chicken chalupa or a naked egg taco? Okay. I'm shocked that one of these even was able to because I felt like all of these were recent in- innovations. I know the egg taco is brand new. Right. I, think that's a, I think that's a cross off for me. My guess, I would have thought that the Naked Chicken Chalupa was also, I, th- I think it origin-wise goes, goes Doritos Locos, then Naked Chalupa, then Egg is my guess. So I have to go Doritos Locos, but I don't feel great about it. You know what? I'm going to give you credit. This is a trick question. So I'm, none of I, them? None of them. Yeah, okay. That's yeah. why I thought they're all pretty recent. <laughs> <laughs> I feel the Doritos Locos Taco has been such an institution. Sure. You know, the fact that that yeah. has come subsequently right. and has built up such a lore really speaks volumes but about even, how long it's been. even if it was just in like, you know, way back in 2013, that's five years ago, which right. is forever in fast food time. Right. And still not enough time to cover <laughs> his last town hall. Okay. Moving quickly now. Yep. So you're, you're looking pretty good. You only yep. have to get three right. Yep. 
The Marvel Universe has become a fixture of our culture in recent years, and we're about to see the greatest mashup in film history with uh, Avengers Infinity War. Okay, get your tickets now. Or don't. Or don't. But the last time Eric Paulson held a town hall, the universe was much smaller. Which of these classic Marvel characters, Brendan, had not yet graced the silver screen in 2012? And there may be more than one correct answer. Great question. Iron Man, Groot, Doctor Strange, or Thor? Um, if any of them have, I'm pretty confident that the, the order chronology went Iron Man 1 before we got a Thor. Because um, Kenny Branagh really saw the the potential that the Marvel Universe had and really decide I got to sign on. Right. Uh, similar thought with Kate Blanchett. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm going to go... Iron Man was definitely around. Okay. Um, I'll say Thor 2, but that would be... That would be my furthest. I don't think Guardians... I don't think we had Guardians of the Galaxy, no Groot. Um, and what was the other one? Doctor Strange. Yeah, we definitely... Benny Cumberbatch. No, no, no. No, no, no. So your guesses are Groot and Doctor Strange were not yet around. Correct. You're correct. Yes. All righty. All right. So just just to see how well you can do on this. Question number five. Lollapalooza may happen outside of the third district, but it is one of the nation's preeminent concerts. And oftentimes the people who headline the concert really have their finger on the pulse of what's hot now. Yeah. St. Paul and the Broken Bones is the answer you're looking for. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if they're from St. Paul. We'll got to look into that. Anyway, which band headlined Lollapalooza? In 2012, the last time Great Eric question. Paulson yep. held a town hall. One Direction, <laughs> Neon Trees, <laughs> the Red Hot Chili Peppers, or the Arctic Monkeys? Um, okay, I think the Arctic Monkeys actually had a big slot a couple years, like recently, more mm. recently than that. Um, could always be the Chili Peppers. That's kind of an option. Mm-hmm. I The idea that Neon Trees... <laughs> <laughs> headlined Lollapalooza is delightful to me. Um, and what was the first one? One some, Direction. Yeah, One Direction had some real possibility. I don't think they ever headlined Lala, though, to be honest. Oh, I feel like it has to be the Neon Trees, but I really don't think <laughs> it, like I can't, <laughs> I can't in good conscience make that selection. I'm going to go, I'm going to go the Chili Peppers. Correct. Wow. Just just send the check in my fried tweet. Wow. <laughs> wow. You crushed that. We're getting some lot of tickets after this. Uh, congratulations, Brendan. You have earned yourself a deep fried Twinkie. Unfortunately, the Minnesota, the citizens of the Minnesota Third have not earned themselves a visit from their representative. Not yet. But before we get to our interviews and, and hear from those people who know this district best, we did want to talk about something that not didn't take place just six years ago. I do want to talk about the upbringing of Eric Paulson. Mm-hmm. And there's some rumors out there, maybe started by me, maybe by others, Yep, that um, he is the child of noted Minnesota young adult fiction author Gary Paulson. Gary Paulson, of course, no- noted for the Hatchet series, which right. began with Hatchet in which a young man named Brian was traveling because of his, uh, to go see his dad, and his parents were recently divorced on a small plane, got which um, was felled in the Canadian wilderness and had to survive with just uh, his hatchet right. and his wits. Right. An incredible story. And then he gets rescued at the end. And then alternate history, we came in with Brian's winter. What if Brian hadn't been right. you know, rescued? And then I think we got into Brian's spring. What's going on? I mean, at a certain yeah, point. Yeah, come on. Yep. But... 
those books did fund Eric's education, so it's really <laughs> tough to to blame his dad Gary for going. They through funded those. his math degree at St. Olaf College in Northfield, Minnesota. Absolutely debatable, <laughs> but it did lead us to a, a new idea on this podcast, which is we do want to start kind of taking this engagement from your ears to your fingers. Um, which often dial the phones to reach your representatives, etc. Yeah. Uh, and this week, what we wanted to throw out was the hashtag representative hatchet. So if you out there have an experience of being ignored or not feeling heard by your representative, why don't you go ahead and uh, tell that on Twitter, or should you have an appropriate picture for it, uh, why don't you throw that on Instagram with the hashtag representative hatchet. And we're going to retweet some of those stories from the, the House Cats official account and also try and send those along to the representatives so they can hear... Um, how they have abandoned their constituents much like everyone abandoned Brian while he spent that winter um, and fall up in the Canadian wilderness in Eric Paulson's father's fictional story. That's right. And and it can really feel that way sometimes. You're out in the wilderness. All you have is a hatchet, which is the iPhone with which you're trying to contact your rep. They're not paying attention to you. So let's really get on. You know, let's really get that after that Twitter verse, you know. Again, a hashtag representative hatchet. Well, that's all we have for you before we get started in hearing from the people who you are really here to hear from. All right. So this interview will be with Holly, who is from Plymouth, Minnesota. And keep a special ear out for when she talks about the power of collective action in her district. Holly really exemplifies the idea that if one person is willing to step up, people are immediately willing and ready to be there uh, after that person has taken the, the first paw in the right direction. Well, so my husband was looking for a job and we didn't have, we wanted to start a family. We didn't have any family in the Bay Area anymore. And so, um, we decided to look where where he had where we had family members, relatives, you know, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, and um, so we ended up coming here. And um, he had a brother here, and my parents were in South Dakota at the time, but they've since moved here. But you know, primarily it was that we both commute had relatively long commutes and felt like we wanted to have children, but we also wanted to see them, and so it was cost of living, it was quality of life, the parks, the schools, the museums, and uh, and it was, it's been a wonderful decision, despite a blizzard in April. <laughs> yeah, that's the trade-off. Um, so tell us about Plymouth in particular. You've obviously uh, had a great experience living there so far, um, but, you know, what were the, were there any things that made that adjustment tough other than the snow in April? cultural things, uh, and then, you know, <laughs> political things also? Um, no, you know, until, until the election of um, Donald Trump in November of 16, um, politically and culturally, living here was, was fine and is fine. Um, you know, it's a, it's a socially liberal, sort of fiscally conservative group, um, mostly. I mean, you, you, we don't, I don't think we have very, we have very few um sort of Tea Party-like Republicans, but a lot of, I guess what I would call old-fashioned Republicans live here, and a lot of sort of moderate Democrats, as, as well as maybe the Wellstone-type Democrats, too. Um, so it's a great place to live. People are active and involved. Um, you know, you 
lots of people volunteer for the schools and um, and parks, and so you know it's a place where people people like living here, and they express that with their actions. You said there was a, a noted change before the November 2016 election. Well, you know, what did you see change? Well, I mean, I think personally, um, I, really, I saw a change after the election. I, sure. I think a lot of the people who live here, myself included, I mean, I think I was a relatively engaged and active person politically, but um, certainly I had I had no idea, certainly not to the degree that I am today, and um, you know, my neighbor of 20 years came over and sat in my living room on the day of the election, and we, we talked about, um, you know, all of our experiences as women in the workplace over the years, and, um, you know, really felt like, oh, things were going to change, and then it was this stunning um, election of Donald Trump, and, um, you know, all the people around me just suddenly started talking to each other, you know, about what are we going to do, and what does this mean, and how did this happen? Where before, I mean, we really didn't, it was only recently that it was kind of okay to put up political signs in my neighborhood. It was sort of like a pact. We just, you know, it's where we live, so we want to be nice to each other, and you don't do that. And really, I think it was actually the gay marriage amendment that changed that, and um, where people, you know, felt it was important to state their views. And tell us a little bit more about what was happening with that gay marriage amendment in Minnesota at the time. Um, so we we had a, a really active, strong um, campaign to, to make gay marriage you know, constitutional in, in Minnesota, and um, it did divide people, um, but it also brought people actively out and trying to affirmatively state their beliefs, and, um, you know, it was interesting. I have, there's a family on our street that is um, very conservative, and they live across the street from my um, my gay neighbors who've lived here for I don't know, 15 years, and um, and our and they they put a sign in their yard, you know, against the amend, amendment, um, and and so I I thought I just, I just can't take that every day. My poor neighbors have to get up and go outside and, and look at their neighbors saying, you know, we we disapprove of you. And so I went down and talked to them. And so I felt it was important to take down their sign. They can vote however they want, but they don't have to offend their neighbors. And um, and that sort of. <laughs> As you can imagine, it didn't go super well, and um, and that sort of changed things, you know, in our neighborhood. It became kind of a, a place where we all talked about it and were very straightforward about how it was more important that people take care of each other than than you get your way. And uh, I think that carried that kind of a gave a base of, of understanding between us as as Donald Trump was elected. Do you think that opening up of conversation, you know, being unafraid to be more political uh, and open with your political views, brought your community together a little bit? I think so. And I think also the, the fact that we won and that gay marriage is now constitutionally guaranteed here, you know, um, there's a, there was a revelation that, well, well, there are certainly Republicans here. There's not very many social conservatives here. You know, people in our district are, you know, we may be fiscally conservative, but we're not socially conservative. And so that also gives kind of a base of understanding. So, I mean, electorally speaking, over the years, at least in presidential elections, the third district has been trending bluer and bluer. And Hillary Clinton won the district in 2016. It wasn't even close. Um 
Have you seen that trend reflected in the way that people interact with one another and the kind of the conversations? Like you're saying it's still an overwhelmingly fiscally conservative group that you know. Um, why do you think the politics electorally have changed so much if sort of the the feeling on the ground hasn't changed that much? Well, I should say I think people are fiscally conservative for the most part, I, I think we really truly have a purple district, and, and we really are a, a swing district. Um, but that said, I think our our congressman, um, Jim Ramstead, for many, many years, and then Eric Paulson follow, following him, really per, have portrayed themselves as moderate um, as moderate representatives. And, you, you know, a lot of the, the language that they use and even, um, you know, their signage, they don't have red signs they have orange and um signs and and so um i think they've really tried to to portray an image of representing the middle and that was very appealing to people um and i i think it's only been post donald trump that it became clear that uh, our representatives have never really represented the middle that they've always voted um straight down the republican line no matter how conservative that was and so now that there was this kind of spotlight being shown on your representative as you became more and more aware of eric paulson's actions what did you think of him well and you know truth be told i i really had given him very little thought <laughs> prior to this election totally I am a native Californian. I've lived here for 20 years, but I still am not as deeply connected locally as I obviously should be after, you know, I've been here for two decades and I'm not going anywhere. And um, so national politics is always something more interesting to me. Um, but when Donald Trump was elected, I, you know, I realized that I, I had to be different. I had to, to do my part to correct this situation. Um, and... So I, I had actually gone online a few weeks after the election. I had heard about an a, a initiative where you could adopt a district. And so I, uh, you know, and help, help a really conservative district, you know, elect someone more liberal. And, and so I had gone online to, you know, thinking in my mind I was going to help some poor person in you know, Kansas or something. And, um, and, I, and my district was listed as adoptable. <laughs> And so it was, it was really eye-opening to me. It became very crystal clear to me that um, there are lots of things that can be done, um, but if you live in CD3, um, that what we can do is, is elect someone other than Eric Paulson. And did you decide to bring that district home from you from the Adoption Center and sign those papers? Or did you, uh, did you end up going with a different district? I didn't. I thought I'm, I'm going to adopt my own. Perfect. <laughs> so, <laughs> that would be a little bit confusing if you adopted the, uh, you know, Florida 19th. <laughs> right, right. And I, I know lots of people who are who are so active and doing all kinds of things, and I, I felt I needed to really just focus on, on one thing because it is so overwhelming. And so um, really started to think about what I could do about Eric Paulson and, and then became... And then became aware that he never meets with constituents in, in a public forum, which, you know, honestly, I really didn't realize. And so in kind of digging in on who he is and what he is, I, I, he seems very vulnerable to me. Well, he did that, and he, I, I think, has got one foot out the door now. 
Right. I mean, now that you have brought more attention to the fact that he hasn't held a town hall since 2012, have you seen people responding to that information? Yeah, so um, as the year progressed, you know, the Women's March came about, and um, we were, I was, I'd posted on Facebook that I was planning to go, and, and several people had asked me if they could ride with us, and, and so I kept saying yes, 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 and at the time I had, you know, there were three drivers and three cars, and we had, you know, 50 people riding with us, so my husband and I thought, well, okay, why don't we rent a bus, and so we into that and figured, you know, the worst thing that could happen is we'd be out 500 bucks, so we rented a bus, and and then in the end, we rented four buses and took um, about 250 people from, or 200 people from the from our area to the Women's March in St. Paul, and, and that was, you know, there were about 100,000 people that gathered, and it was really powerful, and, you know, on our bus, we passed a microphone around and talked about why were we there, and people, you know, there were there are so many people on that bus who are older than me, you know, 50s and 60s and 70s, and they had never been to a protest before, and they, they just felt compelled to, to be seen and um, be clear on what side they were on. It was really empowering. I mean, it, was, it was a wonderful day. Um, and so then we came home, and, and um, you know, it was so empowering, and yet... The world hadn't changed, and Eric Paulson still, I, I had been emailing him and writing him every day, <laughs> and he never responded, And uh, which also shocked me. I, it just shocked me that he wouldn't respond to me, because I just assumed that he would. And so one morning, I, I walked downstairs in the, in the morning, and I, I said to my husband, you know, I'd written my daily email, I said, you know, I don't think he's, I think I'm going to have to go, I'm going to have to go see him. And my husband laughed, and he said, he's not going to see you. <laughs> and I was just, I was dumbfounded. I, I was just completely stunned and thought, oh, no, he'll see me. And then turns out he won't see me. <laughs> so <laughs> I tried to talk to him and called and, and was ignored, and I just couldn't take it. I mean, I just couldn't look. I, I was stunned by it. I just couldn't believe it. And then I started to realize all around me, people were having very similar um, similar dialogues with, with them, one-sided dialogues, where they had been reaching out and, and getting no response. And, um, and, you know, I was not reaching out about any particular thing. You know, I, I have accepted, like, I know that he doesn't represent my own personal views, but he's my representative, and he's been elected, and, it, and if he wants to vote opposite of me, that's his right. Um, but when I call and say, you know, I'm really concerned, and um, I'm afraid, this doesn't seem normal, and to get no response, just it just made no sense to me. So, um, so I... I, I spent a day or two and then one day I we just were talking and my husband and I thought you know why don't we just set up a town hall and this was before the individual indivisible manual was printed in fact I still haven't read it and so like it was just it occurred to us that if we set it up and invited him when we knew he would be home um on a recess then you know he would probably have no choice and he would call because who wouldn't come? You know, like, these are pretty normal people in a kind of normal middle-class area, and it just seemed like it was a no-brainer. You would come. And so we reached out and said, you know, we reserved a, a space, and um, we've set it up and put the date out, and so we're hoping you can come. And he said no. Well, first he didn't say anything, and then eventually he said that he was 
and he was not able to attend. And um, and so anyway, that was so three weeks later we we hosted this town hall thing, and by then I had become truly livid, and so <laughs> um, so I just thought, you know, what would happen? And so we created a Facebook page and started. Um, talking to people and started putting the word out and you know it was amazing actually so we we started the Facebook page and you know on one day there in in one day there were you know 400 followers and and then there were a thousand followers and and so um so you know three weeks later we hold this town hall and and I'm sitting there in the the church that we had that had um, been so nice to, to let us use it because um, they felt that they wanted to be open to help the community in any, any way that they could and so they offered their space and um, I was sitting there and I said to my husband you know if 30 people show up how quickly can we call this done and leave and, and so our, that was our perspective on how this night was going to go like nobody was coming to this thing and and the the church staff, you know, living here, actually had a very different view. They they made me be very clear that they could only seat 650 people, and then I would need to turn people away at that point. And so I said, oh, sure, I have no problem turning people away at that right. point. Never mm-hmm. thinking that that would be the case. And, um, you know, an hour before the doors were set to, or before it was set to start, we'd already passed 650 people, and there were hundreds of people in the parking lot just you know and it was very cold and so I had gone outside with my teenage daughter and (laughs) you know like put our bodies between them and the door and I'm really sorry but you have to go home and they didn't you know they just stayed outside (laughs) that's fantastic um, and what was funny is we live about five minutes it's less than a mile from our house and so none of our actual friends and neighbors came it was all people who live on the far edges of the district because they didn't know how long it would take so they left early and got there an hour in advance and you know my neighbors we couldn't leave our neighborhood so we couldn't get there and so it was it was remarkable well, Holly, it seems like you've definitely experienced the power of collective action that's just driven by, you know, common belief. You know, you yourself were able to organize all of these people coming out at first to the Women's March and then, you know, to, to try and meet with Eric Paulson. What does it feel like, you know, seeing that action? Um, you know, there's some things about it that are really great. I mean, I actually think that... Um, the life that I'm personally leading and I see my friends and family leading is better now than it was before the election. I mean, we don't take things for granted and we don't assume that, you know, if if we don't say something, maybe no one will. And if we say something, maybe it'll help my neighbor or my friend feel confident to speak up and do something too. And so, you know, in action... I don't think I was ever apathetic, but I, I definitely think that I always could have done more. Um, and kind of for the first six months after the election, when we were just really busy with these activities, you know, I would just say to myself, just do more than you did yesterday. Just do more than you did yesterday and it will be okay. Um and now actually our district we just endorsed um right after the town hall, um experience um we were just terrified that no one would run against eric paulson you know there was 
there was no one coming forward and people kept asking my husband if he would consider running which was completely out of the question and um <laughs> and so we were we were really worried about that i mean you, you you just can't run if you have children in a small business and aren't independently wealthy there's there's no way that's that's feasible and so um and so we were thrilled a few months later when um, I had heard a rumor that someone I knew through my work was, was planning to run. And he, uh, so, so then Dean Phillips um, stepped forward, we sat down and talked, and he had said that he also woke up the day after the election and said, I have to do something. And so had been thinking and been thinking and had decided that he would run. Uh, and yesterday he was endorsed by the Democratic Party here, and uh, you know, I think he's going to win. Well, Holly, you know, we, this is a totally nonpartisan podcast here, but you know, one thing we applaud on any side of the aisle is citizens coming together to demand better representation than they have. I mean, that, that, that's what this whole thing is about. And so your work is extremely impressive. It's really, really cool. You should be really proud of all that you've been able to put together. Oh, thank you. I mean, I, I, I really appreciate that. And also it's, um, it seems like just just barely enough at this point. There's a lot more to be done. Well, to to quote a person who knows what they're talking about on the matter, I believe the the quote is uh, "just do more than you did yesterday," <laughs> which sounds like something somebody <laughs> said about 15 minutes ago. <laughs> yeah. Brendan, what did you uh, take away from that interview with Holly? What didn't I take away from that interview with Holly? Yeah, exactly. Now, I mean, what a, a fascinating and engaged citizen. I think the first thing that really struck me was point blank her optimism about the future. And she, as a person who identified as a Democrat, said for her it had nothing to do with the Democratic Party. You know, the organization and work she had done was purely based out of reaction, reacting to their current circumstance around them and what they were feeling as a community. Uh, and she did that organization, and then she felt like the party's gonna gonna come along behind them. But as people who are more interested in the actual nature of government and less in the partisanship of it, I thought it was really, really interesting to hear someone who's doing that organizing work feel like it is totally detached from the idea of party politics and is more based on human politics. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I love it's really interesting to me, too, that her identity hasn't changed that much. You know, it's not like she is now, changing her life becoming you know a politico she's not it's no she's just still holly she's a citizen of plymouth minnesota she has neighbors and she has a lot of people around her that she's met by being so active and it has continued to be just this community effort that is not transcended it's not metastasized into something uh more political than that you know it's not it, we didn't we barely touched issues you know it was it's all about people connecting with people and Eric Paulson is not connecting with the people. Totally. And kind of in that vein, I thought it was interesting how she talked about her first real political involvement being the legislation to allow gay marriage to be part of the uh, Minnesota Constitution. And she identified that winning that made it feel like these things were possible. And it kind of underlies the importance of people experiencing what they're working for actually coming to fruition. You know, I can see how it's easy for people to stay engaged in politics when, uh, you know, one of the first things that you're working on goes your way. And I'm kind of interested how right. that dynamic plays out for people on both sides because 
no matter what, half the time, you know, a lot of people are not getting their way. And the last thing before we, we move on from Holly, I thought she just said something really excellent, which was the idea that if we don't say something, you know, maybe no one will. But if we do say something, maybe our neighbor will hear the thing they needed to hear and will feel empowered to speak up too. And that is not a political idea. It doesn't, it doesn't fall under any ideology. It's really just a human one of collective action, of community. If we believe something and we don't say it, maybe no one ever will because maybe other people don't believe those things. But if you do say what you believe in, if you do speak up, maybe the people who do agree with you will also feel empowered to speak up. And that's how you kind of speak these things into existence. Yeah. Totally. I mean, all she had to do was make one Facebook event and 1,100 people showed up. Yeah. Obviously, it was just somebody had to light the match. All, all she had to do was make a statement about wanting to go to the, the Women's March on, on Facebook, and she's all of a sudden renting four buses to get people there. Right. You got to speak up. Our next interview this week is with David, who really needs no introduction. Talk about a fascinating, engaged, and interesting person who's going to give you a really great perspective on what it's like to live in Minnesota 3. My name is David Lamog. I live in Edina, Minnesota, part of Minnesota's 3rd Congressional District. I'm a public relations executive. I actually just uh, started my own business uh, about six, seven months ago after years of working in public relations and marketing agencies. So that's a bit of a new chapter in my life. Uh, I've been fairly active in politics my entire adult life. And uh, the only other place I've ever lived is Washington, D.C. So that can, you know, clue you into the fact that I'm a bit of a political junkie like you guys are. Totally. And David, what was it like going from, you know, political junkie to small business owner? Boy, I mean, I definitely learned to see the world and to see things like economics in a different light. I never, I guess I always understood how, how difficult it is to start a business and to sustain a business. But one of the things that was a real, uh, real eye opener for me was just how, the national and the regional economy play into individual success in business. Uh, we're in a you know we're in a time right now where business is very good for people like me. I think a lot of businesses are getting tired of uh, you know hiring big expensive agencies to do what I do, and so there's a lot of opportunity happening now. And uh, so it's a, it's 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 a good thing. But that was my biggest revelation is just understanding how these issues that I'm so passionate about and some of the political commentary that I you know I, I, I watch uh, uh, regularly has an impact on things like my business and my daily life. And is it particularly interesting for you, you know, uh, as a business owner, you're dealing with this kind of financial stuff from a new perspective as the tax structure is being changed in this country and your representative is really in charge and has a lot of power in that discussion? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely one of the reasons why I've been speaking so frequently about the upcoming congressional race. Um, believe it or not, the, uh, the, the tax law uh, is, uh, is going to be better for me <laughs> than I anticipated. I uh, went to my tax man last month and, and he said, you know, you're, you're going to be okay. But to me, it, it, it's, it's about more than just I've got mine. Right. And I see the detrimental impact of uh, this tax law um, almost every day when I'm thinking of people who earn far less, people who may be, you know, in a, 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 you know, a tipped wage or, a, or an hourly position um, are not going to have the same benefits that I'll have as a small business owner. And that bothers me. 
Can you talk a little bit more what it's like to be contradicted in that way? You know, as you can imagine, a lot of the people we talk to about this legislation are kind of on the negative side personally, so it's a lot easier to oppose, but you kind of looking at it from a more, you know, even just community perspective, people outside yourself, what's that like? Well, you know, for, for me, it's really about, you know, an issue of incredible importance, and that's poverty and income inequality. You know, the 3rd District is, is likely one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest, congressional districts in the state. And uh, sure, we work hard, and, and, you know, people here work very hard for what they have. Um, but, uh, you know, I can only speak for myself when I say that, you know, privilege is definitely part of the equation. My, my parents were both very successful business owners in their own right. They put me through college. And my belief is that there's no reason why everyone shouldn't have that same shot at a productive or a lucrative career. Um, but when the federal government puts uh, tax laws like this into place, it really, it really hampers people's ability to attain a higher station in life. And... The way I look at it is it's not just about me. It's beneficial to me and to my business if people around me have money to spend, if that makes any sense. <laughs> and so you were saying, you know, the tax bill isn't quite as advertised. Eric Paulson has been one of the chief advertisers of the tax bill. Are, are people around you kind of seeing through his messaging about it? Uh, or do you think people are continuing to be bought and sold by the way that uh, Representative Paulson talks about it? Well, we would love to have him come and talk about the tax bill to his constituents in the third, but uh, so far he hasn't. Honestly, that's I think our biggest gripe here in the third is that he has had the opportunity to talk about this legislation and what it means for residents of the third, but he hasn't. Um, there's no dialogue. There's no give and take. And I think that that's what frustrates people here the most. Even people that support the tax cut would probably like to see him coming into the district and talking about it as opposed to having these telephone town halls or meeting with donors to talk about it as opposed to his constituents of the third. You kind of mentioned the frustration that comes along with this. I got to be honest, we've heard from people across the ideological aisle all saying the same thing. What's it like when it feels like the answer is so simple? You know, just talk to his constituents and some of this would go away. Right. Um, I, I honestly don't know what what his staff is thinking, um, especially, you know, over the weekend. I think the state Republican Party just endorsed him for reelection. So um, the Time is really running out for him to get here in the third and start talking about his record and start defending his record. Um, I, in all the years that I've been adjacent to politics, I don't think I've ever seen an elected official um, be so afraid of answering to his constituents. Um, and that's that's frustrating all of us. Well, David, as a as a PR professional, I do want to ask you to maybe do uh, some pro bono work just here for a minute. <laughs> you know, hypothetically, let's say there were a, a government official who is looking to connect with his constituents. They're pretty frustrated. You know, he has a lot of legislative power and things that affect their everyday life. How would you go about repairing that image? I, I would. I would go back to the grassroots, honestly. Uh, even if it involves door knocking, if it involves hanging out at the farmers market, um, just being present and being visible where people in the community are. Um, Edina, the community where I live, has a Fourth of July parade that's just, you know, it's a blockbuster. Everybody comes to it. Um, Eric Paulson was not in attendance this year, and it people noticed. <laughs> um, 
those are the kinds of things that I would, if I were advising him, I would say, get out and be approachable. Show people that you're a real person with real concerns um, uh, about the future of the country and engage with people and tell them how you are helping solve these big problems like healthcare, like the economy. Um, by simply standing in front of a video camera and doing a live stream where you're talking to the camera, that's not engagement. That's holding forth ideologically. And uh, so that, that, that's what I would do. I would just tell them to get out into the community, go to the places where people are congregating and be present. Um, we have a long tradition of that in this district. And in this state, we're very politically engaged here in Minnesota. So I, I frankly don't understand what his advisors are thinking in making him so unavailable to his constituents, especially if he is you know, planning to make a real run um, for re-election. My, my, my opinion, going back a couple of months, was that he would not seek re-election. Um, because, you know, why else would you turn tail and run from your district? Um, but it appears that he will seek re-election, so um, he, he's got he, he's got some work to do. <laughs> yeah, no question. Um, so I, I'm curious because when he first got elected, in his early days of being your representative there, people, call, people called him Opie. You know, he's just really good-natured, sort of, you know, even-keeled guy from The Andy Griffith Show. And he was just a decent old Minnesotan and he was a moderate Republican. So what do you think has changed? Is this a change in him? Is this a change in the discourse? Uh, Is this a change on behalf of the constituents demanding more than they ever did? You know, how has this all come to be? I don't think it's a change in him. And and, and, and to, to be clear, I don't know him personally, but I think that when he first ran for election, he, um, he sold himself as a moderate, but uh, we were sold a bill of goods. Um, he's, his record has shown that he is far too ideological and too far to the right for the third. Like I said, we've got a long tradition of modern, electing moderate Republicans in this district. And yes, you're right. He sold himself as a moderate when he first ran. But then he joined Congress and marched in lockstep with George W. Bush, opposed everything that Obama and the Democrats proposed. And then last cycle in 2016, he said all the right things to get reelect, reelected, you know, regarding the, the, the future president and, uh, you know his, you know disappointment uh, with some of the discourse coming out of the presidential election, um, but then again returned to Congress and then did the president's bidding without question, and and people here are very angry about that. But you know, given that he's been kind of at this for so long, what has allowed him to avoid accountability up until now? It seems like there is now a lot of public and political pressure on him, but as you said, he's been this conservative since he was elected. I think they've had four opposition candidates running against him, to be honest, and not to, you know, not to undercut the DFL in any way, but uh, the candidates really have not been strong in opposing him. Um, and I think that there is a contingent, you know, I talked about how this is a pink district. The further west you go, um, the, um, uh, the, the, the politics get a bit more conservative um, and it sort of follows the wealth, right? The wealthier communities to the West of here tend to vote Republican. A lot of those folks probably know uh, Eric Paulson uh, because he does spend a lot of time talking with donors. He spends a lot of time talking, uh, you know, with corporate folks. Um, his last district work week a few months ago, I, he never held a public event at the third. He went to a company over in St. Paul and gave a fundraiser speech. Um, he went to medical device companies again, outside of the district to talk about the tax cut. And um, 
that you know that to me you, you, you can't win like that and I think this is the year when voters of the third are finally going to stand up and say okay we've got a good candidate now running in opposition to him moderate candidate who's very very well known here in the Twin Cities um, Dean Phillips and uh, and I think that Eric's going to have to change the way he goes about uh, campaigning uh, because this whole keeping the constituents at arm's length, it, it's not going to work. Um, his opponent has been out here in the community for months doing public events, dropping in on you know coffees and things like that uh, with the community. Um, and uh, he's taking sort of that Paul Wellstone approach of you know riding around in the green bus and just talking to people. Um, I don't know that Eric can compete with that, to be honest. Have you noticed the community responding to that? I mean, just the idea that having someone around who, who is interested in representing them, uh, speaking to them? Absolutely. And somebody who will listen. I mean, the, the great thing, and I mean, and this is you know not just Dean in particular, but I think what people want is somebody who's going to listen to their concerns and who's going to give thoughtful responses to them instead of just a series of talking points. Um one of the things that you know I've enjoyed um, in getting to know Dean and talking to Dean, and I've, and I've actually known him for, for, for many, many years. He's I grew up in South Minneapolis. He grew up in South Minneapolis. We knew a lot of the same people in common. Um, and what he does, what impresses me the most is he listens. He wants to know how best to represent the concerns of the third. And I don't think that's something that Eric Paulson has ever come out and asked voters of the third. He is running on his agenda and his agenda alone and not being responsive the way we expect our leaders to be. You know, I cast my first, my very first ballot in 1990 when I turned 18. I voted for a Republican governor here in Minnesota, and uh, I did that not, you know, not but not because I wanted to be a maverick or to be different, because I honestly thought that he would be a better choice than the DFL candidate. Well, um, I didn't like how he governed for four years, so I voted for somebody else four years later. And I think that, you know, at least speaking for myself. Um, Prove, prove it is kind of what I say to a lot of these uh, folks seeking, uh, you know, seeking my vote. That they come around, and it's not about what you say so much; it's about what you do. And uh, you know, going back to Eric Paulson, he said a lot of the right things. He says a lot of the right things during election years, um, but it's what you do that matters. And um, looking at his record, I just don't think that what he's done justifies another term. I think uh, you just said something that we're going to end up repeating on this podcast for a long time. It's what you do that matters. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> right. And not to say that, you know, he's, that, that everything he's done has, has been garbage. I'm very proud of his work to stop human trafficking. He's truly been a leader on that issue in the House, Eric Paulson has. Um, and, uh, and I admire that, and I'm glad that he's advancing that issue. Um, but honestly, that's just about the only thing that I can give him credit for. You know, when we started talking a couple days ago, I started thinking, well, what, what are some things that I'm proud that he's done? And that's the only thing I can think of. Um, the... the uh, the stuff that I don't like far outweighs that that piece of what I do like that he's done in Congress. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. We've we've talked to you and we actually talked to somebody else earlier uh, this morning. And, you know, we almost like haven't really touched issues really at all. We talked about the tax plan, but it's almost like this issue of, of direct contact with you guys is trumping any kind of, you know, practical, legislative, ideological anything. It's like even if he were, you know, 
involved in some interesting legislation, it still wouldn't matter as much as the fact that he hasn't talked to you in six years. Absolutely. We can't talk to him about the issues that concern us. Uh, Health care is a huge concern for me, uh, not only being self-employed, but I have a chronic health condition that requires very expensive medication and specialist care. Now, I'm lucky. My wife works for uh, the school district and has great benefits. Um, if she did it, I'd be in a high-risk pool that would cost me thousands and thousands of dollars. And I, I would love to hear from Eric um, what he plans to do after dismantling uh, the health care law. What's going to happen now to people like me who are responsible for their own insurance and who have chronic health conditions? What, what's going to keep me from going bankrupt for paying my health care bills? And... Um, so, so, I mean, there are issues out there that we're concerned about, that we're talking about. The trouble is he's not talking back. I can imagine how frustrating that gets, especially as the, the voices trying to talk to him are only growing and you don't have a, anything really to show for it. Right. Well, David, I got to say, we're, this has been incredibly helpful and illuminating of the, the situation in, in the Minnesota Third, but it, certainly on our end of things, from the outside perspective, it seems like there's definitely reason to hope. It seems like there are people who are passionate just like you, who are just looking for someone who will have a conversation with them to, you know, to decide their future. Right. Talk, talk to us. And that's what I would say to him. I mean, if, uh, if by, the, by chance uh, Congressman Paulson is listening, I would say just come and talk to us. You know, I'd like to see you at the grocery store. I'd like to see you at Centennial Lakes Park this summer. Um, give me a chance to come up and meet you. I've never even had a chance to shake your hand and meet you. So how could I possibly vote for you? Eric, if you're listening, tweet at us uh, or just show up. Show up to Centennial Lakes Lake Park, um, August eighteenth, really twelve p.m. High yeah, noon. We'll be there. And Nick, did you take anything away from this David interview besides our itinerary for our upcoming visit to the Centennial Lakes Park this summer? Right. Don't forget August eighteenth, high noon. It's we'll a beautiful be there. Park. I've been there. David will be there. Eric Paulson will be there. <laughs> We're just going to speak it into existence. It's yep. the secret. Just say it and it'll happen enough times. Um, listen, I thought one of the most impressive things about David was talking about his relationship to uh, one of the uh, Republican, the current Republican Congress's most signature pieces of legislation, this tax overhaul. And he had a really interesting relationship to it, which is that he recognizes that it is basically good for him. It helps him out. It helps his pocketbook as a small business owner um, living in, uh, in Edina, which is a, an upper, upper middle class suburb of, of Minneapolis. Um, and, you know, that generally would, would make someone look favorably upon their representative, right? Who would help pass this bill that was going to benefit them. Absolutely. But there's a balancing act going on for him both in that he recognizes that the impact of this piece of legislation will be not so positive for many other people and it's also trumped by the fact that because of his lack of connection with eric paulson because eric paulson spends so little time listening to him it doesn't even matter it sort of feels accidental is what i was getting from him it's like incidental it's like he made this bill sure it's good for me but i know that this dude doesn't have my interests in heart and so you know, just based on his behavior, 
And so that frustration about his connection to him, uh, you know, trumps the import of this piece of legislation. I thought that tension was really interesting. Yeah, it is really fascinating as you start to talk about these ideas more specifically about how sometimes they feel like they're crossing what we imagine the party lines to be both ideologically and about you know specific pieces of legislation it's often the conservative position that taxes should be lower and that's that's good for businesses david's someone who's going to reap that benefit but looks around and says that will only benefit me and believes it's going to actively hurt other people in his district and so he's not a fan whereas you know ostensibly that kind of thinking, you know, it depends on where you fall on the issue, is kind of what we hope from our representatives, you know, that they can recognize that most things they're doing will help some people and not always help others at the same time. So it's interesting to hear someone who believes they're looking at something that will help him and actively hurt other people and says, you know, that benefit to me does not justify that, um, you know, does not justify that action. So it's fascinating from a constituent perspective. And I think it just brings it back to that that quote we even repeat in the interview. It's what you do that matters. And so although these things feel like they cross you know, political lines and a lot of those conversations are interesting to have, they fund the entire uh, kind of political pundit network of people to have an opinion how things fall uh, along party lines or politically. But at the end of the day, it's what you do that matters. And if the actions taken benefit a small group of people like David and hurt, you know, a majority or more of the constituents, then that action probably is not in line with with the whole constituents. And that's that's what it comes down to. Our last interview this week is with Tom. And Tom is a guy who has a lot of experience fighting for legislation near and dear to his heart on a different level than the congressional one. And it certainly has affected his relationship with his representative. Take a listen. My name is Tom Jess. I live in Plymouth. I am retired and um, like to hunt, like, like to do a little bit of fishing. Um, I've taken, uh, I'm active with some conservation stuff. I was part of the Orange Hat Brigade uh, to get the legacy amendment passed down at the State House and um, worked on that for a couple of years and um, as I said I like to hunt and over the years I've developed an interest in uh, carving my own decoys to make it more fun to get back to hunting a little bit more old time well Tom can you tell us tell us a little bit more about that legacy amendment you got passed well, that was to, that was the three eighths amendment that was passed back in um, I'll say two thousand eight because we had uh, two rallies at the Capitol uh, two thousand five two thousand six um, that we brought sport sportsmen up up to the Capitol and just basically to put put money back in the environment uh, one third of that. Um, three-eighths went to conservation, one-third of it went towards clean water, and then the other third was broken up between the arts and parks and trails. Um, what was that experience like of getting that amendment passed and working on a piece of legislation that big? It was pretty pretty cool. Went to a, went to a lot of um, committee hearings. They had to 
you know, taking work to legislature. There were, again, um, eight people that they inducted into the Waterfall Hall of Fame. They did a lot of work. I just went as a volunteer um, just to take and talk to legislators, do some testimony in front of some committees. And it was, um, you know, basically to get get involved with uh, citizen involvement with with the legislature and it was it was pretty cool well tom that's really fantastic to hear you kind of having that that engagement with your local government uh, let's uh, step back a little bit and let's kind of talk about your relationship with your representative, uh, Eric Paulson. You know, have you have you ever had any kind of interaction with him like you had on that on that bill? No. What is your um, after the Parkman shooting? I had done some research and I had taken a few items down to his office. Um, I don't remember if they were uh, if they were on break or not. Uh, was within about within about a week, and um, he was he wasn't in the office, or they were they were shielding the staff was shielding them from uh, people walking in from the office. Unless you know there was some he had some appointments or whatever, but um, there was, I've had no contact with him. I've. I've been on his Facebook site and have voiced my opinion on a few things. Uh, what has it been like on his Facebook page? You know, asking him questions or talking to other constituents has that been more productive than going into his office in person? That I don't know. What I what I what I seem to see on on his website is he he does a lot of um, meeting with. Um, Manufacturers or small small constituent groups that that he posts on his website, he really doesn't seem to. And, and this I know for sure is he hasn't had a a town hall meeting in um, this is eighteen. It's been almost um, seven years now, and I don't know how how you represent the people of your district without trying finding out what the people want or what the people have got to say about programs or how you how you as a legislator or congressman would express your view back your views back to the people you represent or are supposed to be representing totally um i mean in that vein tom obviously eric paulson he's been in office for a number of years and uh, he's on his fifth term right has there been that spotlight shown in the district about him not holding those town halls until recently or is it only kind of in the last year or so that it's kind of gotten that attention I can say uh, I can't um, just from my my experience I'm rather new to Facebook and so I've been watching it just over the past um Eight ten months, and what what I've seen is he's not he's not that that prone to uh, put his views out. And since he's been there ten years, he would rank uh, probably in the in the top third of his caucus, which which would mean that he should 
he should have some leadership positions based on seniority and he should be able to take and you would think that you would you would see it on the news where he's making his views known i, I mean there, there's a lot of um troubles and and that right now with the current administration and he doesn't seem to be uh speaking out one way or the other whether he supports it or, or he, he's against some of the policies and actions of, of the administration I want to go back to uh, that experience when you went into his office in person. Um, how did it make you feel to kind of show up there and be stonewalled? And have you ever gone back? Well, I went down there one time and I got a little bit in. I'd gotten a little bit incensed at, at a comment that, that he had made, and it, it seemed to be a uh, comment that that um, seems to be prevalent amongst everything with, with the large number of shootings, and it was, our thoughts and prayers are with you. So, being me, I took a um, check, down to his office uh, for the amount of thoughts and prayers so that he would have enough <laughs> for the, the next um, incident whenever that might happen. To your knowledge, has Eric Paulson cashed that check for hopes and prayers? For thoughts and prayers? I don't know. I, I had to take it. Um, they said they couldn't accept it in the, in the um in his office, they said that, that they couldn't take it, that there was an office um, upstairs where uh, his his campaign office was, and it was just marked his campaign office. The door was locked, so I, so I slid the check under the, the door. I haven't seen, you know, or heard from the, the congressman. So you have these particular issues that you care about, you know, that you've mentioned as a a sportsman and, and a hunter and a veteran, um, and you've worked on those issues on the state level, do you think uh, if you were to pursue those issues with Congressman Paulson or with any representative to the federal government that that might um, engage you in that way? If it, Do you think you'd be able to translate that into working uh, for the federal government, or is this something you're more comfortable doing at the state level? That's a good question. I um, I don't know at this point. It, it would you know it would take take something to you know maybe trip my trigger a little bit to to work on a con, to to work on a congressional level. But um, Tom, uh, just just yes or no. If if Representative Paulson came to town and had a town hall for the first time in six years and gave you the the kind of in-depth answers that you just expressed uh, wanting to hear, would you consider voting for him again in November? He would have to do a lot between now and November in order to even get that to change. Got it. Nick, what'd you learn? Boy, I learned a lot from Tom. Um, but, you know, I, something I thought was really interesting was 
he has really distinct relationships to the different levels of government. So he has been very active in the bill writing process of the state legislature. He really got in deep. And then one rung up his relationship to the U.S. House, he's felt very disconnected. And obviously that's partly for, you know, being refused, being stonewalled when he did try. Um, But it seems like even inherently he's got a little bit less interest in pursuing that. And then all the way up to the executive branch of the federal government, he's really angry He's outraged at what's happening with the administration, but in terms of his being active in it, I think it felt like a long way off for him. Totally, yeah. The idea that having success at certain levels also affects your relationship with government, the fact that he worked very hard on getting a, an amendment passed that eventually did end up getting passed, you know, certainly has a reflection. And the, he, he referred to the uh, Orange Hat Brigade or Army, you know, the, his fellow yeah, yeah, yeah. Hunters, hunters and uh, conservationists. And I think that kind of speaks to the importance of having people working on these things with you. You know, when he was working with a group of people, like-minded people, and having success, he had this great relationship with the state government. But he has this kind of solo, personal relationship with Eric Paulson. Mm. You know, went there, was was not met with a response, didn't have, quote-unquote, success reaching out, and thus, you know, kind of doesn't have a relationship with Paulson as a result. Right. Um, I think that kind of speaks to the importance of people finding other people who want to get involved in, you know, whatever your viewpoint is, but how that, you know, a defining success matters in your own relationship with speaking, uh, interacting with your government, but also having other people around does clearly impact how, how we have these relationships. And crazy how he doesn't have a relationship with Paulson, given that he attempted to give them a very generous donation uh, of thoughts and prayers in check form. He seems like the kind of guy that would maybe meet with his campaign donors, but maybe not. It's very mystifying. But, uh, you know, a stunt, yes. But was there a lot of meaning behind it and a lot of real want for connection there? Definitely. Like a tiny hunger strike on paper <laughs> without any actual physical discomfort. <laughs> maybe he cut his thumb, you know, paper cut, but he didn't mention it. <laughs> You did it! You made it to the end of another episode of House Cats, and your reward, as always, is a trip to the Scratching Post. So this week's Scratching Post, Brendan, is going to be about Dean Phillips, who is uh, the Democratic candidate who's running against Eric Paulson. Uh, you've heard his name thrown uh, thrown around, bandied about a bit over the course of this episode. And Dean Phillips is a businessman uh, who resides in the 3rd District. Uh, And one of his many uh, credits on his resume that I assume he still keeps up is he was a co-owner of the uh, Talenti Gelato Company, a uh, high-end ice cream product. Uh, You know, I'm sure everybody who's listening has seen it in their grocery stores, perhaps in their own freezers. Brendan, how do you feel about Talenti? Good gelato, impossible to open. And that's the problem. So in our exploration of (laughs) Dean Phillips, we did find there is quite the gallery of people who have uh, lodged complaints with the Talenti Gelato Company over the impossibility of opening their gelato containers and thereby ingesting the sweet treat therein. Um, There are pictures of people stabbing these lids, like just giant kitchen knives through them. There are people like hitting them with different devices. There are people who like 
truly shatter the lid of this gelato uh, <laughs> in order to get inside. And we're here to say, just make the lids easier to open. Come on. It's not that tough. Right. And for the record, none of this is any more laid at the feet of Gene Phillips as he is no longer involved with the company. Right. He did sell it. But a noted entrepreneur. But I think if he is going to be accountable to the people, if he thinks that he is going to represent them to our federal government, he's got to answer for this. I mean, look, there's a perfect analog here. A representative's first job is to show up, listen, and represent. An, and ice, cream, an ice cream jar's first job is to provide the ice cream. And to keep it, yeah. That's true. I guess you do have... Yeah, you have to have a Two-fold first job <laughs> for the ice cream container. <laughs> Keeping the ice cream contained and also, you know, so one can... Making can it available. Yes. So yeah. one can consume it at a later date. Love that Moroccan mint, though. Worth it for this... That, worth the struggle. Not sure about that raspberry, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, let's wrap it up for this week. So thank you so much to everybody for listening uh, to this... Frankly, stellar episode of House Cats. Our oh. best one yet. Yeah, one of my faves. And if you agree or disagree or have any other comments or questions, concerns, stories about members of the House of Congress but never straying therefrom, mm-hmm. go ahead and hit us up at housecatspod at gmail.com. And if you're interested in uh, House Cats in another form, just keep an eye out from us as we will be launching the Laser Pointer, our small version of this where we give you stories about people from Congress who uh, either are or are not doing the best job of uh, representing their Congress people, but in bite-sized pieces. That's right. Keep an eye on your email. Uh, always feel free to tweet at us, uh, at HouseCatsPod. And again, uh, you know, hit hit us up or, or tweet at your reps with stories about feeling like you've been abandoned by them. Hashtag hatchet rep. That'll be Rep on. hatchet. Yep. Okay. Rep hatchet. Thank you, Brendan. Glad you were here. Meow. <laughs> no, we got to sign off. Yeah, we yeah, got to actually yeah, sign yeah, off. Yeah, we can yeah, just keep going. Yeah, yeah. And until next week, I'm Nick. I'm Brendan. 